I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am, uh, I'm, I'm P from Pianon. Uh-oh. <laughs> Pianon, everyone's least favorite internet, <laughs> internet conspiracy theory. I should, I should have picked a better uh, letter. That one's way too easy to, uh, to make fun of, but I just thought it's the one that comes before Q, so, uh, you know, I'm higher up on the alphabet. Uh, and I'm Matt Bernico, uh, the other host on this podcast. And this week I'm uh, W, not from the conspiracy theory, just from the <laughs> W's, you know, your favorite Christian ska band. <laughs> yeah, great. Perfect. Uh, this week on the show, if you haven't figured it out already, we are talking about QAnon, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, for a number of reasons, because it's bad. It's a tough thing to learn about, tough thing to hear about. And it's kind of awful to talk about also. <laughs> but uh, we did bring a very good guest so that we didn't have to do it on our own, Hollis Phelps, who recently wrote a very good article in The Bias. Um, by the way, if you don't know about The Bias, uh, you should. Matt and I have both written for them a couple of times. Um, it's from the Institute for Christian Socialism. But the article in The Bias is QAnon is the perfect evangelical conspiracy, and Hollis is here to help us figure out why. So let's go to Hollis. Welcome to the show again, Hollis. Uh, for people who don't know, Hollis has been on the show in the past talking about his book, uh, a great, fantastic book about Jesus and mammon and the politics of both of those things. Uh, it's great to have you with us again. Uh, for people who haven't listened to the previous episode, you certainly should. Hollis's book is extremely good. But instead of having us introduce you again, maybe you could do that for us, Hollis. Who are you and what are you about? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me again. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm Hollis Phelps. I'm an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. And like you said, my uh, most recent book is Jesus and the Politics of Mammon, where I provide a political reading of Jesus that filters everything through this disjunction he makes between God and mammon. And I'm generally interested in the relationship between religion and politics. And I also um, am currently doing some research on the relationship between religion and psychedelics, but that's a longer term project. So, Whoa. Um, 
now I want to know everything about that, but maybe later, I guess. <laughs> um, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, apart from doing all of that work, you've also recently wrote a really illuminating piece for The Bias about QAnon. Um, so we'll get to your piece in a minute uh, and talk about it kind of in depth. But before we do, um, I don't know if anyone doesn't know about Q at this point, but in case they don't, uh, what's QAnon all about? So QAnon is a conspiracy theory that emerged on the web uh, primarily through 4chan um, and then it migrated to 8chan. Um, and so it circulated around these message and image boards for a while until it became a little more mainstream, especially during the pandemic. But what it says is that there is this cabal, as they call it, of hidden forces and actors manipulating things behind the scenes. And so you have, you know, politicians, media moguls, elites, Hollywood stars, billionaires, all of these major players throughout the world. And they are running an international sex trafficking and pedophilia ring. And they're also using this ring um, for cannibalistic purposes and satanic purposes to harvest a drug called adrenochrome um, on which they feed. Um, that's the basic idea of the theory. It's there's a lot of talk about a deep state. So if you hear talk about a deep state, this is in reference to the QAnon theory as well, um, at least how it's currently used. And so all these actors are what we call part of the deep state. And they're really just vying for control over us as a people. And this is their primary, one of the primary ways they're doing it. Um, it's a little out there as a theory, but that's the basic theory. Yeah, that, that sounds like uh, at least what I, I know about it as well. It's weird, though. I mean, could you maybe say a little bit more about the ways that theory, I guess, manifests itself in social media? I'm thinking of like the like all of the save the kids stuff that's been happening and weird, you know, the Christian bubble on Facebook and stuff. I mean, like, you know, all of it seems pretty out there, but I guess it's presented in these uh, these more palatable ways. I, I don't know. Is there anything that you have to say about that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the theory itself, if you take it literally, is seems pretty out there and unbelievable, but QAnon doesn't usually present itself in that way. So the example you just used about the save the children hashtag and social media campaign, QAnon was able to hijack that and use that to start spreading their own information and misinformation. And they also showed up at various rallies but also it's become so attached to right-wing propaganda that it gets spread in a variety of ways. Uh, most recent and also most concerning, I think, is the way that it pushed anti-mask hysteria and propaganda throughout the pandemic. And I think that, I mean, if you look back to the early days of the pandemic, um, things weren't as contentious as they are now, at least political speaking. Yes, there was still political back and forth, but it didn't seem as contentious, at least as I was observing things. But once QAnon started to get involved and push anti-mask propaganda, 
Um, and also some, again, other out there theories that about 5G being used to transmit the virus and Bill Gates wanting to insert microchips um, through vaccines, then um, it started to become more contentious and more effective and popular discourse. And just at a basic level, um, if you look at various memes on social media and a lot of the things people are posting from a right-wing perspective, a lot of it is being pushed by QAnon and finds a source in QAnon. Um, even TikTok now, uh, a lot of um, a lot of TikTok videos are being um, you know posted with hashtags referring to QAnon or the "Where We Go" one, "Where We Go All." slogan um but yeah so it's pretty widespread at least how it functions and what it does is it tries to draw you in through these other means and then expose you to the conspiracy yeah that is i think what's most troubling to me about it anyway seeing uh you know people who you can you can sort of uh watch the transformation happen in real time you know somebody hears that um there's like a sex trafficking ring that's been busted which may or may not be true and then that sort of uh, becomes the the weird ethical gateway into which you find yourself uh, compelled to commit to weirder and weirder problems. Um, your your article is titled "QAnon is the perfect evangelical conspiracy," and I think that's a great way to continue developing a little bit about how this whole thing works, or or how it thinks, or whatever. So I guess the natural question is, why is that? Why is QAnon the perfect evangelical conspiracy? How can we sort of make it? maybe legible in a sort of evangelical framework or what ties those two things together? Yeah, I would say up front, there's definitely other ways to read it. And if you look at the various articles that have been published on QAnon and the popular media, there are numerous lenses that people employ to understand QAnon. And I think all of those are accurate to an extent. I find the evangelical one pretty compelling because I think there's a lot of overlap between the two and there's this almost um, natural progression from one to the other. I think there are a lot of reasons for that or a lot of reasons why there's overlap there. Um, one is that in the United States, evangelicalism has always had a strong anti-intellectual thrust. And by that, I mean that it's really not susceptible to alternative proof claims. In other words, it, it hinges on to what it believes and anything that attempts to throw that off is considered out of bounds or considered wrong. When you move into QAnon itself, a lot of the major people writing about the theory from within side the theory. Um, if you look at some of the most popular posters on these image boards, or if you look at the authors of the various books out there that attempt to write from the QAnon perspective and proselytize in the name of QAnon, um, they use evangelical language. It's uh, it's hard to distinguish the two sometimes. You know, you'll have a conspiracy theory dropped in, and then you'll have this language about being born again and language about the second coming. Um, and so the language used to talk about QAnon is 
very evangelical and a lot of the writers uh, from that perspective consider themselves to be faithful Christians. So they don't see the two as opposed to each other. They see it as one in the same thing. Um, I also think with evangelicalism that the sort of major sin in evangelicalism always has to revolve around sex in one way or another, whether it's abortion politics, whether it's um, LGBTQ politics, whether uh, you know it has to do with sex before marriage and purity culture, you name it, it's always attached to sex in one way or another. And so QAnon provides a really easy fix there because it fits into all of these anxieties around sex and just amplifies them. And so, and basically, so, and so evangelicals can say, see, we've told you that culture is depraved and that sexuality is a mark of this, but look at how depraved it is now. There's literally a pedophile ring uh, being run by elites. Uh, and I would say the fourth thing there is that that all has to do with evangelicalism being culturally on the decline. And by that, all I mean is that culture has, in a lot of ways, moved beyond evangelicalism. I still think evangelicalism wields a lot of political power, which is in part what QAnon is about. Uh, but culturally speaking, evangelicalism in the United States has been passed by in a lot of ways. And the things they have been concerned about, gay marriage, things of that nature, are the norm now. And so this is a way for them to, um, another way for them to work out, I think, their own fears and anxieties about being on the losing end of a culture war and them trying to articulate that war in more fervent terms. Yeah, I think that's right. I think pretty illuminating to uh, to say the least. Uh, is it all sex and anxiety and and stuff, or is there anything else that's uh, that makes it such a compelling narrative? You know, like I, I guess like if you're just a if you're just a person on Facebook, um, why do you think this appeals? Why, why would this appeal to you? I think it's appealing the way a lot of conspiracy theories are appealing. It provides you with some sort of secret or mystery that attempts to explain all the random happenings and corruption and crime and everything else going on in the world around you. It gives you this sort of stable narrative that says, you know, oh, this is what's going on. And finally, I can trace everything that's going on back to this basic theory. Um, and so, when people come to it, I think it, I think it provides this sort of form of knowledge that allows them to make sense of the world, which I think today is, is probably even more compelling than ever because uh, there's so much information and so many cross purposes floating around out there constantly um, that something that you know can unlock the key to that can provide some comfort. Um, Another thing, too, one of the reasons I think it's compelling is just the sheer repetition of it. I wrote in the article that conspiracy theories today 
don't necessarily function in terms of how intellectually compelling they are, at least on the surface, but just in terms of sheer repetition. Because at least from my perspective, there's not too much compelling about the QAnon theory for me. I mean, if someone presented me with a theory of the government hiding you know, aliens in secret at secret government installations, which is, of course, a common conspiracy theory, that compels me in some sense because I can sort of see that. But the, the QAnon, but it's, I'm not saying I necessarily believe that. I'm just saying that it's more compelling. The QAnon theory seems really out there to me. But I think what's important, it's not so much about being intellectually compelling as it is about being sheer through sheer repetition. And so that's why it's the perfect conspiracy theory for a social media age, because the more it's shared, the more likes it gets, the more people that get in these groups, the more it's talked about, the more visibility they can get, um, the more it's simply repeated in this very basic fashion the more it seems to spread. And one of the ways that it spreads, especially although YouTube has now taken some precautions with regard to this or tried to fix it, is through YouTube's algorithm. I mean, it was found that um, the algorithm was actually, if you watched a certain number of videos, it would start pushing conspiracy theories and QAnon content on you. Um, and the sort of, you know, you'll also like this video thing. And so people were getting sucked into it just through watching certain things. And then they go further down the rabbit hole. There's a, I mean, a good blog about, or not blog, I mean, um, podcast on this. Um, that's called down the rabbit hole that talks about how the algorithm pushed this on people. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying makes so much sense, especially the way that QAnon hits people at this kind of, I don't know, sub-rational or pre-rational kind of way, or it's, uh, you know, it, it gains, it sort of, it gains momentum by circulation. Uh, that all seems to make sense. Um, maybe later we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about conspiracy theory in the left, but one, one sort of uh, gloss that you bring to this in particular is to suggest that Q is kind of like an apocalyptic cult. Um, and I want to maybe bring that in here as well. You know, if that's the case, like what events are Q conspiracists awaiting, right? So on the one hand, there, there's this kind of uh, sheer repetition. It, it kind of sucks you in and yeah, you find yourself down the rabbit hole, but it also creates these like desires or expectations um, so how does that sort of factor into it? What are people waiting around for? Well, they'll refer to it as the great awakening or the storm. And basically what it is, is the arrest of the people in this cabal, which will usher in a sort of right wing utopia led by Donald Trump. I mean, the details of this. I think they're somewhat lacking. I find it all very vague. And I mentioned this in the article as well, um, that, you know, there's this great hope for something grand to happen, but it, it's really small on details. In other words, you're not going to get any concrete policy proposals about what they expect. Um, for me, it's really what they're really waiting for is this sort of, white supremacist xenophobic utopia where everything that is labeled other 
everything that doesn't fit into this very conservative narrative about how the world should be and who it should be for will eventually be locked up or vanquished or destroyed. And in this sense, it's like a lot of other apocalyptic imaginations out there as well. I mean, apocalyptic imagery always involves in one way or another, at least classically vanquishing some perceived enemy. And that's what gives victory to the aggrieved party. Um, the issue here is that the aggrieved party isn't really an aggrieved party. In other words, um, they're not, they haven't historically and culturally been on the wrong side of race and politics and social mores. The people they want to vanquish are those people and because they feel threatened um, by those alternatives. Um, and so that's the way I think it's apocalyptic. And I mean, it has its own savior figure as well, which, as I said previously, is Donald Trump. Donald Trump, for them, is the only one that is currently holding back the forces of evil in the world. And anything negative that happens to Donald Trump is an attempt to overthrow Donald Trump and insert the deep state more fully and control society to an ever greater degree. So this is why when Donald Trump does something absolutely ridiculous or when, you know, even when Donald, you know, news comes out that behind the scenes, Donald Trump was absolutely aware of the seriousness of the pandemic and downplayed it for them. All of that media attack on Trump is just that, and it's attack. It's an attempt to overthrow their leader. And so it's really airtight for them. Anything that happens is an attempt to overthrow Donald Trump, which is why you can never um, provide any sort of alternative argument to them, because they'll just come back and say it's a conspiracy against them. That's really interesting. Um, a minute ago, you said that uh, you know the apocalyptic part of it was all sort of vague. And, and no one has any like hard and fast ideas um, about, you know, what's going to happen and when it will happen and what it will look like. Uh, how does that vagueness, do you think, play into the um, like the flexibility of the conspiracy theory? It, it seems like uh, that would make it hard to argue against. Yeah, I mean, because it's so vague, you can almost attach anything to it. And so anything that happens, if it falls outside any of the predictions, then it's really not a problem because it either just hasn't happened yet, or maybe we read things wrong. Maybe we got the details wrong. It's the same sort of thing that we've seen for decades in evangelicalism with um, predictions about the end of the world or apocalyptic narratives or readings of biblical prophecy. There are these predicted ends, whether specifically or vaguely, and when it never happens, it's always, oh, well, you know, the time is longer than we thought, or maybe we got this detail wrong or something like that. But this is a really interesting thing at the basis of QAnon as well is because um, the original post that started this all off by the person who goes under the name of Q was very specific in what would happen. Um, this individual said that 
um, you know, talked about the imminent arrest of Hillary Clinton. Um, it didn't happen, though, but that didn't stop the conspiracy. And so there are some very specific claims made. Um, when these don't come to fruition, though, um, then there are ways to get out of that by, you know, appealing to a lack of knowledge or more action on the deep state and Trump and his cronies had to change course and postpone things. But the actual future claims as far as what is this going to all look like, you know, what's the end goal here? Those always remain outstanding and vague, which means it could be just about anything. Um, and, you know, I suspect that that's not going to change even if Trump loses the election to Biden. It's just going to, for QAnon, be another instance of the deep state attacking Trump. And so they'll come back with even more force, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, I think that sounds about right, unfortunately. Um, it's an interesting inoculation um, that it kind of creates to, you know, always keep the uh, keep the you know, d disproving it at bay or something. Well, uh, you've brought up uh, evangelicalism a few times uh, in the conversation so far. Maybe we can kind of parse that out more explicitly. Uh, you know, the the QAnon, the QAnon and the white evangelicalism like Venn diagram are not perfect circles, but there is a troubling amount of overlap between the two. Um, so like what's going on with that? Why, what do they share in common? Why is there so much like synergy between these two camps? Well, I think just at a very simple level, there's, you know, a shared interest in right-wing politics, evangelicalism in the United States um, for at least the past 40 years has been, you know, pretty squarely on the right. Um, the majority of evangel white evangelicals, when I say evangelicals, I primarily mean white evangelicals here, but um, white evangelicals, you know, predominantly voted for Trump, and I suspect that's going to happen again. And so the kinds of right-wing politics that QAnon plays with um, are the same politics that we find in evangelicalism. So when I say in the article that QAnon isn't this outside force that's infiltrating churches, that it's already there and already has been there, that's really what I mean. To go back to, I think, an, an, another attraction in evangelicalism is this tendency to name anything that disagrees with your worldview as not just a disagreement, but as evil and sort of put it in metaphysical terms. So, um, you know, people on the other side of the aisle or people with different political positions are not just people trying to understand things the best they can. They're people who support or are involved in this evil cabal. Which is why, I mean, during the election, Hillary Clinton could never, during the, the election between um, the 2016 election, um, Hillary Clinton could never just be, you know, a normal neoliberal politician who used to teach Sunday school. She had to be the very incarnation of evil for evangelicals, which she is in the QAnon conspiracy as well. So they share a lot of those concerns. And I think also, you know, on another point, 
there's evangelicalism, white evangelicalism in the United States is inseparable from white supremacy and racism. And I think this plays out in QAnon as well. And again, I don't mean individually racist or biased necessarily, but structurally racist, structurally white supremacist. And that is wrapped up, I think, in evangelical politics. And so there's definitely that overlap with QAnon as well. Um, As you said, you know, it's not a perfect Venn diagram. And there are even some people in what we would normally consider like more... I guess left discourses or at least liberal discourses, you know, all these health and wellness um, goop um, people that have latched on to QAnon as well. And I know some people who aren't religious at all that have latched on to QAnon, um, but they're all looking for something and i think for evangelicals QAnon, you know provides more of the same and it's just not that far of a stretch for them to latch on to this theory because they've been hearing aspects of this theory constantly over you know the past 40 years or so they've been hearing how evil people are they've been hearing all these sexual politics and so i think it's natural for them to latch on to it or not natural maybe that's the wrong word but it's it's not surprising to me i would be more surprised if evangelicals didn't latch on to it (laughs) uh yeah that makes a lot of sense uh certainly rings true uh for me i think um you know you mentioned there's lots of angles on the QAnon thing evangelicalism is just one but i think that you're right to point out that it is a really unique kind of angle or vector that makes sense of it in a in a unique way as a result you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like when I was in high school, I was in a, a sort of charismatic right wing youth group. And like we would watch these documentaries about how, you know, like you uh, 2 they're all like Satanists. Everybody in the music industry, they're all Satanists. And, uh, you know, the devil's on the move and the enemy's going to get you like a prowling lion. Right. All this kind of stuff like the satanic panic stuff um, that just gets sort of recycled. Um, and maybe you could say a little bit more about that, like I find a lot of journalists in particular just sort of don't, um, I mean, it's a hard thing to explain to someone if you haven't like gone through it. It's not very intuitive, right? Uh, how how does having a, a working knowledge of evangelicalism and, and its most reactionary impulses help us kind of make sense of the political landscape? Yeah, well, I mean, I remember watching videos uh, in youth group about how satanic music is and how if you played certain heavy metal records backwards, then you would have all these (laughs) um, messages for you to, um, you know, worship Satan and drink the blood of children and things of that nature. And I wasn't in uh, what I would call a very right-wing evangelical group. It was was just sort of par for the course, I think, within a lot of strands of evangelicalism, um, especially in the 80s and probably into the 90s. and, and then in evangelicalism later on, you have this whole, you know, discourse on purity culture and sex that arises. But I think having a working knowledge of evangelicalism helps you recognize these things and also helps you recognize the visceral level at which these kind of discourses or conspiracies 
act. Um, yeah, intellectually, it, it sounds, you know, now it sounds kind of uh, ridiculous that, you know, you too would be implanting um, secret messages in their music to try to sway me to Satanism, especially all that I know about you too now, right? I mean, it's, it sounds sort of ridiculous, but that's not the level at which those claims are operating, especially for people in youth groups. But even as they continue in evangelical churches, it's operating through fear, but it's also operating through networks and communities. You're part of this thing where you all share similar ideas of the world. You all have similar fears. You all have similar expectations and you have this sort of culture that's trying to hold back everything else in the external culture that is trying to dissuade you um, from becoming secular, becoming non-Christian. And, you know, that's a very powerful discourse. That's something that you just can't erase from your psyche very easily, even if you eventually leave evangelicalism. And so I think a lot of journalists um, don't recognize this part of the conspiracy that I think, you know, as you were implying, is that a lot of the claims we've seen them before. Uh, we've seen, you know, well, the anti-Semitic claims in the theory go back, you know, as far as anti-Semitism goes back and in particularly to, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which postulated something very similar. Um, but, you know, these conspiracies about pedophilia rings you had in the 80s and evangelicalism, um, conspiracies about Satanism and cannibalism are, you know, pretty par for the course in evangelicalism as well. The difference now is that everyone has access to them immediately. Whereas in, you know, the 80s, when I was in youth group, you had to be shown a video by a youth leader um, and go to a youth group. Now everyone can have access to them. So it can spread a lot e easier. Yeah, the democratization <laughs> of the satanic panic. It's very good. Um, maybe we can take a quick turn uh, in the conversation and talk a little bit more about the, uh, the okay. latter parts of your essay. Um, one of the really compelling points that you make is uh, about the relationship between conspiracy and agency, something I'm really kind of fascinated about, actually. It's uh, it's often assumed that like people turn to conspiracy theories as an attempt to like flee from the reality of the situations you know, that they're in, that there's things that they can't do anything about you know, in, in the face of just insurmountable deterministic forces, right? They're just kind of awash in the, the, the waves of the deep state. <laughs> but uh, as you explained, QAnon has actually been really successful at harnessing the agency of its constituency for all kinds of right-wing causes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Could you say a little bit about like what's going on with agency and conspiracy and how these two things are uh, not what you'd expect? Yeah, and, and this is actually something that I sort of came to while writing the article and researching for the article um, that wasn't even on my radar or wasn't something I thought that I would end up writing about. I mean, I, I read a lot of critical theory um, and a lot of contemporary philosophy. And, you know, a lot of it is really lacking in a sense of agency. In other words, there's a lot of attempt to explain 
um, how these structures beyond our individual control are um, interpolating us into various systems, right? And so we become these cogs in a machine and to, you know, um, we become data for large companies and, and, you know, uh, capitalism in a sense takes away our agency. I think that's a very common discourse across a lot of strands of left thought, a lot of strands of critical theory. And so this is actually what was on my mind when I went into it. But when I went in and read what the QAnon people were saying, um, I came away with that with the sense that they don't think that at all. They think they're part of some grand struggle and they give numerous instances of what they think they're doing to influence the world. And actually what they're doing is influencing things. And so I also think that people are finding a refuge there because it does give them a sense of agency. They can feel that they're a part of something um, that may not be available to them otherwise. And for them, you know, every protest that they show up at, every meme that they continue to spread that catches on, and there are numerous QAnon memes that have become popular. Um, every time, I mean, someone, you know, someone writes an article about them or goes on a podcast to talk about them, that's evidence that they're having evidence that they're having some sort of effect. And so they actually do have political agency. They're just using that agency in a sense that people outside of QAnon don't appreciate or don't like. Um, and I think this is where we really need to be careful about how we analyze things, because I do think that we still work with a, a sort of naive idea of moral progress, where at the end of the day, you know, things will get better. That's what we're hoping for. Um, we'll become a more just society. It's just going to take some time. And anything that works against that is not really political agency. It's just a sign of depravity or a sign of not knowing um, something correctly or a sign of ignorance. I, I think we really have to take the idea seriously that we may not be headed to progress, that um, things may devolve. And I mean, from my perspective, and after looking into this QAnon stuff, um, you know, it, it worries me that that's where we're headed. Um, whether or not Trump wins or not, because I think either way, it's going to be bad. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, and so it's an agency that a lot of people don't want to recognize, I think, but it's a form of agency nonetheless. Um, and I think we need to deal with it as that. We need, need to deal with it as a type of political will and not just dismiss it as some crazy conspiracy theory. And until we do that, I think it's going to continue to spread. I think that's right. And I mean, as as kind of troubling as it is, it, it's also it has a real explanatory power, at least that uh, makes more sense than some other explanations. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about how, you know, you, you often talk about how uh, we shouldn't understand something like right wing evangelicalism as being hypocritical 
when it does things like, I don't know, believe QAnon or support whatever the worst thing Donald Trump is doing at a given point in time, um, that instead we should we should find a way to sort of make sense of this in like, a you know, as bizarre as it might be, some kind of way of thinking about the world and approaching it. Um, so, if, you know, if if it's not hypocrisy, like if evangelicals supporting this uh, bizarre way of, of moving throughout the world is not uh, hypocrisy, what's like a better way of understanding uh, how that works? Um, it seems to me that the, the agency explanation that you're giving uh, just helps us open that up a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think you just have to label it for what it is. I mean, I don't think you should read evangelicalism as this sort of good, moral, upstanding faith that has somehow gone wrong by dropping into politics. I think you have to read it as a political phenomenon. Um, and reading it as a political phenomenon, especially in the last 40 years, but also I think especially now after the election of Donald Trump and during his presidency and the rise of the QAnon theory, you have to understand evangelicalism in terms of what it does. And what it's doing is playing white supremacy. It's playing xenophobia. Um, it's stoking all of these fears. It's attempting to install more oppressive forms of government. And I think that's what evangelicalism is at the current moment. It doesn't matter what it was 70 years ago. We're dealing with, it, with what it is now. Does that mean that all evangelicalisms, all evangelicals individually um, buy into that? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means as a whole, as a phenomenon, then that's what it is. But that also means that persuasion or calling people out as hypocrites isn't going to help matters at all. It's, got, it's not going to do a thing. if it, if it if calling someone a hypocrite actually worked, then we wouldn't have Trump as a president and we wouldn't be in this situation that we are now because all the evangelicals would have turned their backs on him by now. And I remember, you know, since Trump got elected, every sort of thing, everything he does, someone will write an article saying this is the final straw. Evangelicals are going <laughs> to leave him now. But then it never happened. And it won't happen in this next election. And I mean, Trump, you know, when he was running for president, said he could shoot someone in the street and people will still follow him. I think he's absolutely right about that. We've seen it. He's proverbially shot a lot of people in the street and people continue to follow him, especially evangelicals. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, even if Jesus comes back before the election. But I mean, <laughs> and so this hypocrisy thing doesn't even work as an argument. So we need to stop treating it that, that evangelicals are just misguided and being hypocritical. This is their politics. This is what their religion is. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to change. Um, and that's why, you know, it finds a home with QAnon because it expresses a lot of the same things. And so that's why, Although there's not entire overlap, it's also not surprising where we do see the overlap. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> I don't like what you're saying, but I think it's true. I, I don't <laughs> and, uh... well, I don't like it either, you know, and I think that's part of the thing. I think that we we and by we I mean, you know, us, but people on the left and liberals we we don't want that to be the truth <laughs> um and we have to deal with that as the truth and even with you know people uh, i mean people talking about that biden you know has a commanding lead here and trump is really shooting himself in the foot here and oh trump won't survive this definitely i think that's being way too optimistic and missing mm -hmm. what's going on right in front of us. I don't think we should be certain at all. I think we should um, be really careful and really concerned and take seriously that this could turn out really badly. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I know that sounds apocalyptic, but, <laughs> <laughs> but signs of the times, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I'm speaking of the left and uh, what what could possibly be done. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the very end of your essay, uh, you end with this like I think a, a pretty convincing um, criticism of leftist rhetoric around organizing that I think we should talk about for a minute. You said that the the problem with left organizing is that it relies on the idea that if we only got the real message out, then people would follow suit. And you've explained that that's, you know, pretty naive because the right, the right ideas already are out there and nobody really cares. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, what is, where does this leave us moving forward? Calling people out as hypocrites doesn't work. Just getting the, the truth out there doesn't work. I, like, where does this leave anyone on the left who's trying to struggle for uh, some kind of better situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the hard thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not much of an organizer, but... I think that the left needs to focus on its own house first. I, I think there's, I think there's too much time spent, and I'm usually using left here loosely, um, you know, to refer to anyone, you know, sort of well, probably liberal and and more left strains of thought as well. But it's, I mean, I think too much time is spent trying to convince the other side of how they're misguided or that they're wrong and that we can actually appeal to them through reason. And I think that's why Biden is the candidate, right? Biden is the most inoffensive Democratic candidate that they, the Democrats could have put out there. Um, I mean, he's a white man. He's moderate to conservative. He has not promised to radically overhaul anything. He's actually said he won't. Um, but the right still paints him as wanting to instill socialism in the United States. When, when that's the position you're arguing with, then you might as well not even have the argument anymore. And I think the struggle has to be within the left itself. And I think that's where you have a potential for real change and real struggle. Um, I mean, you have had some uh, left upsurge since the 2016 election, and so that's promising. But there's fights within the Democratic Party and among people on the left on where to move things. 
And I think what needs to happen is things just need to get done at some point. Um, and that sounds really naive too. And maybe that sounds simplistic, but I think the only way you're ever going to convince people of anything is if they actually see it having some benefit for them. And so, um, you know, you're not going to convince people, let's take like healthcare as an example. I mean, the argument clearly isn't working for a variety of reasons. I mean, because healthcare industry is so strong is one reason, but also just because of the propaganda on the other side about, you know, the expansion of something like Medicare for all, that's not, you know, that argument isn't really working. And so at some point you just need to, I mean, jam something in there and show people that it does work. And that's the only way it's going to actually work. Now that's, I mean, that's the only way, because if people see the benefits from something, then they're more likely to go along with that. The problem there is that means, you know, a lot of investment, and that means going against the interests of a lot of people who are in the Democratic Party as well. I guess one of the main things is that the discourse just needs to shift on the left. And I'm not saying, you know, there are people on the left who don't do what I'm criticizing. So that's not who I'm criticizing here. But I think that the left lets the right make the rules too often. And it lets them set the narrative. So if we looked about, you know, a couple months ago, people still had abolished the police on their lips. And now no one's talking about that anymore. Um, because the right set the narrative on it, and then the Democrats followed suit, and now the narrative is, for all intents and purposes, a right-wing narrative. The problem is we don't have too many left-wing narratives out there that coincide with the people who are actually in power. What you're saying, I think, makes a lot of sense. And it also, I guess, what comes to mind for me is like, how do we differentiate between like the desire for a conspiracy theory that gets expressed among uh, QAnon people? I mean, some people it's true are just, I don't know, like, I don't want to say that you can just write them off or whatever. Um, lots of people do, and that's fine. I'm not here to tell you, you shouldn't, but I'm not, not trying to do that in my own situation. But like, you know, there, there's maybe a, a subsection of people that you'll just never reach and that's fine. But like, there's also a, a lot of um, otherwise like seemingly normal or average people who get sucked down this sort of well uh and for for some reasons that seem kind of right like the the uh the way it gets interpreted is obviously massively wrong but like this assumption that there is a, a powerful class of people like calling the shots in the world that extremely basic premise is true right and that is a leftist point uh it's just who are they right and and how do they do it and how does it work and how is it not a conspiratorial narrative but a sort of uh you know, a social scientific narrative or however you want to put it, a political narrative. Um, and maybe that's like, that's the question I always ask when I hear somebody talk or like make a vague claim to like a QAnon idea. It's like, at what point did the left sort of fail to also kind of, um, you know, get its explanation on on the board? Again, not to say that everybody would just submit to the the better argument, but like, a lot of people just simply don't even understand, you know, what's being sort of analyzed or proposed because everybody is too busy just 
I don't know, shoegazing or whatever. Well, it's like what, I mean, Nancy Fraser calls it uh, progressive neoliberalism, right? Is that at, at some point, um, progressive politics hitched its wagon to um, the same sort, uh, the same sort of conservative economics. And so we get these pushes simply for minor reforms, but nothing that's going to fundamentally upset the system. Um, I think the problem with that is that those minor reforms don't actually help people for the most part in the long run. And so that's where you have, I think, the idea of class coming in. Um, But I also want to be careful not to reduce everything to class, because I do think that part of the QAnon narrative and part of the reason it's compelling is because of the racism, because of the anti-Semitism, because of the xenophobia. That's why people like it, I think. Uh, I'm not saying that that's, that's not a very positive view of human beings, but I think that's sort of what the conspiracy is telling us about things at this point. And I think we have to remember that politics is a struggle and we need to struggle this out in some way um and for the left that's going and going to involve not accepting the terms that are given to them from the right because it always pushes things to the right and when you push things to the right you're going to lose because there's always someone farther on the right um and there are people better at communicating it. I mean, Donald Trump and his people, um, I don't think they're very smart on a lot of things, but they do know how to win people over and they do know how to play a crowd and they do know how to influence people. Um, and they do know how to get their message out and how to appeal to people at that visceral level. Um, we may not like that because we hold on to this idea of politics as a rational discourse, but I think we need to accept the fact that, um, the rational discourse usually happens at the policy level, not the political level during elections. Um, and and we need that visceral level on the left. The problem as I see it is that the left has given away a lot of that visceral politics and some of the people they've thrown out there for candidates. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, at some level, this all really resonates with just my experience of even like leftist social media. You know, it's oriented in an entirely different way in the way that it, you know, receives and tries to combat sort of these like right wing talking points um, and like the larger narrative. I I don't know. It's all extremely depressing uh, when you when you start laying it out like that, I I guess. But just the same, I I think it's a good word that. you know, uh, political struggles are struggles. So I yeah. guess that's what we'll have to do to go forward. Um, yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, I hope it all works out for us. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> but just the same, I think this is a really helpful, um, uh, your work is a really helpful way to kind of start getting our minds around, um, I mean, some of the very troubling things going on on social media but in, in the larger media narrative as well. So I really appreciate that you wrote it and you took the time to talk to us about it. Well, yeah, thanks for inviting me on again. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm glad you enjoyed the article. And yeah, it's about struggle. And hopefully, we'll get the struggle right. (laughs) So...
<laughs> yeah, well, thanks again for coming on the show, Hollis. Um, if people want to know where to find you or how to uh, support you or see what you're up to, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, though I don't always post a lot. It depends on my mood. Um, at HPhelps4. Great. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again when you're done with this uh, wild new work on psychedelics. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard and, well, you know, it's depressing and bad and you probably didn't like it, but uh, not liking it is okay, uh, but you're probably better off knowing about it. <laughs> uh, anyways, if you are better off knowing about it, you can support us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, hey, we've got a new sticker up there. If you support us at the 10 or $11 level, uh, you can get a very cool Camilla Torres sticker that uh, Ryan Cagle designed, and it's really great, and you should do that. But if you can't, that's fine, too. To clarify, you, you'll you get the sticker if you donate at that level for three months, specifically. Right, that's just the weird way that Patreon works. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not like you're buying the sticker. It's a reward for us, that's right. <laughs> for you. <laughs> Um, anyways as always our uh, intro music is by Amari Armstrong and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon we'll see you next week I don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Will you keep your hoods up and you stay up late? Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Lisa, what else are you gonna do? Is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan.